Hello and welcome to The Real Maxime Podcast. I'm Maxime, your host. I'm an economist, former tech entrepreneur, hedge fund founder, and private investor. I started this podcast in part to continuously engage with some of the brightest, most interesting, and accomplished minds in my areas of interest. My guest today is Annie Pai, who is an investment partner at Dragonfly, a crypto-centered investment firm founded by Hasib Kreshi, now deploying its third venture fund across all stages of blockchain and crypto-native companies, protocols, and tokens. When you sit down with Ani and start a conversation, you immediately get a sense that this will not be an ordinary chat. It is a conversational equivalent of a good tennis clinic or chess game. You know from the very first moves, this will be a good session. Listeners will get a sense for his relentless curiosity and thirst for informational edge, which manifests itself as he peppers our chat with various nuggets of knowledge. Investing in innovation is a perpetual research motion. Therein lies the challenge. Research takes time, and time spent researching one area is a lost opportunity to explore others. Developing an ex-ante ability to predict where time will be best spent is what sets good investors apart. As such, Ani believes in the need to be polymathic in one's interests and skill sets in order to continuously evolve his investment thesis along the innovation curve. He compares the hyperconnectedness required to source deals and meet contributors to the different states of the mycelium network. And thirdly, a good innovation investor needs to develop a process for how to price human capital and quantify its financial capital multiplier, i.e. its ability to create a fast-growing money-producing asset. This can only be accomplished if one is willing to take themselves out of their comfort zone and predetermined environment to seek light, the path less trodden inevitably yields alpha. Ani holds a degree in economics from University of Warwick. When he's not funding exceptional founders, he likes to collect esoteric books. I hope you enjoy our conversation. As to where I grew up, it was in the South Bay, like in Cupertino, Apple headquarters. But back then it was quite funny in part because I had an interest in computers, but my deep passion back then growing up was always in art. And for the longest time, I think until I was perhaps 16, I thought I would be an animator, like a 2D animator. So work at Pixar or something like that and just continue the synthesis between like math and art. Because back then, even now, Pixar does like phenomenal things with both computer graphics, computers and art in general. And I was just like transfixed by all that stuff. And I thought that was like the coolest thing. But yeah, it was quite weird. As I entered high school, I think I experienced like a deep, interest in both aviation and like rocketry and crypto. So like it was pretty weird interest, I think, but kind of got me all over the place and got me thinking about like just all the fun stuff that you can do in this life. It's really interesting because every time I talk to a guest, almost every time they say something I can really relate to. And there's one there that I'm unpacking here, which is your early passion for 2D animation. Pixar is one of my favorite all-time companies. Actually, one of the things that people don't really know, or it's not obvious, is Steve Jobs actually made more money from his investment in Pixar than he did from Apple. It's a passion project. One of my favorite movies is Wall-E. And as a kid, my mom's an artist. I used to draw a lot. That's like my meditation time. I still draw little doodles and cartoons, but I was fascinated with the way it was done when I was growing up. It was literally frame by frame. And I was a big fan in France. There was a big comic books culture. And, you know, they turned some of the comic books into animated features. And there were documentaries as to how they produced it. And to see 
the tedious, painstaking effort of like literally going about it frame by frame to assemble what was like a two hour movie, to me, it just blew my mind. It was absolutely incredible. So the talent and no one would have the patience for this nowadays, which is incredible, right? So when you say crypto, is this in, in high school already? You're just out dabbling. Like, what's your initial exposure to that? Yeah. And I fully agree with everything you said. I think, at least as it pertains to the art stuff, there's no stone left unturned, right? And I think the detail-oriented nature of the job, I think, is quite useful in like everything else you can do. I think that's also why like Paul Graham, in his book, Hackers and Painters, talks about that, where there's this like vivid correlation between musicians and programmers and artists and like thinkers in general, right? Because it's almost like the same parts of the brain. But to your point about crypto, yeah, I mean... I had started programming and I was like, I really don't see myself being like a full stack, just dev on like web two, qua web two stuff. That didn't seem like super interesting to me. Like everyone I grew up was in that boat and I knew that they didn't like it, but they were just doing it because society told them to, right? I mean, the goal of anyone in the South Bay was to work at Facebook or to work at Google or something like that. I could never see myself think having the attention spent to do that. But crypto kind of came about because of my interest in math. And so I would take these long walks after school and with a few of my friends who are also interested in the same stuff, we would just think about like, we'll talk about the new innovations going on in computer science and all these things. And Ethereum white paper had kind of come out and like people had been hearing murmurs of what Vitalik had been doing. And that's where my early interest in crypto came from. And so I was the first whole coiner, you could say, owning my first whole coin probably back in 2014 or so with that thesis, in part because I just found the angle of programming in crypto to be so much more interesting than everything else, right? The permissionless, immutable nature of the chain, I think, just offered a lot more surface area on like going from thinking into application. Unlike I think a lot of Web2 stuff where you have to learn like a thousand frameworks, like nothing really works. Even the output that you get is like not super interesting. Obviously back then there was no like GPT, right? So you couldn't like speed up the pace of programming itself. And I was never great, I think, debugging per se, but yeah, crypto was just a lot more like immediately gave you like that hook, even without the speculation, just even as a programmer, it was a lot more interesting. So a lot of that prepares you for what you're now doing, which is obviously a, a more technologically driven understanding of core blockchain technology from an early stage, right? Does prepare you for how much is that still very well anchored in your brain as far as how you look at the world today? Yeah, that's interesting. I would actually say that technical side of the early stage job is probably a lot easier than the dogged determination of just wanting to learn everything. I think that's been one of the big lessons I've taken from every investor I respect, which is, you know, when we're at the dinner table or at any place, the first thing that happens is they just have this incessible curiosity and need to ask why for everything. Like they just want to know, you know, we could be talking about like the balloon wars of the late 18th century or whatever, and they'll just want to like dig in, right? And that's like something that I think that separates like the best from the average. And I think I had that early on in part because one of my deep hobbies even now is like collecting esoteric books. And uh, back then I would just go to the library instead of going to school and just like read the weirdest stuff I could possibly put my hands on. But you end up do believing in what Munger says a lot, which is that like everything is like deeply connected, right? And I think the sooner people learn that probably the better because like fundamentally the venture capital job is pricing human capital and like humans are the most complex creatures in the universe. I mean, that we know of, right? So it's like, how do you understand people very well? And so you have to like take in all these like various disciplines and like compartmentalize them and like bring them together in a way that I think other people can. So that's another 
very, very interesting concept, which I tend to agree, especially in the early days around pricing and really human capital as an asset class, right? Because that's really what it is. How do you think you, because we've become friends, we've interacted, and obviously you have an aptitude to read people. You have an aptitude to network. It's part of your job, right? To be connected. How do you think you develop that, right? Because on the one hand, you talk about interests that are fairly nerdy and you do talk about like going to the library and like reading those esoteric books. But at the same time, you talk about, oh, walking around, like taking long walks and talking to your friends or with your friends about these esoteric concepts. So what do you think helped with that nature of like connecting the dots and also like reading human capabilities? Yeah, I think I was always good at just like maximizing the time that I had and trying to be focused and like to be deeply in the moment. And I think that's just very hard for people in part because right now it's like the most scarce thing in the world is just attention, right? And everyone is like just fighting over everyone else's attention 24-7. But the ability to detach and to be fully focused is something I think that's helped a lot. But yeah, I would read all these things and I just wonder like, does this actually apply to the real world? And I think it was a lot of the thinking I did around nonlinear systems and like chaos theory and like in the early days of Taleb and all those guys, right? With the Santa Fe Institute, like people talking about how some of the greatest crises of all time were very much in the intellectual domain. And I think you even see that and it's been proven correct even in past years, right? Of like how most of the world reacted to COVID, like how we react to many disasters now. We don't really do it in an anti-fragile way. But it was my thinking around that that I think made me step back and realize, oh, wow, I can't just like think about things. And I think that gets people into this like wayward abyss of just you can have like all these great mental models, but one great part about the venture job, and I think any investing job is a line, like every intellectual kind of needs a hedge fund. Because if you have these ideas, you have to like test them repeatedly against reality. And if you don't, you'll just find yourself in this ivory tower, which I have seen many people go down and maybe they're happy, maybe they're not. But I mean, at the same time, it's like, you don't want to be too divorced from like the nitty gritty of world of atoms, right? You want to like combine both the thinking and the action which I call like Greek terms, there's this dichotomy between praxis, the theory of action and poesis, which is the theory of process. And yeah, spend a lot of time there and thinking about like, how do you create the best process to combine both? Where did your, so growing up in the Bay, like where did you end up going to college and what were you specializing in at the time? Was it very driven by this mindset that you alluded to or what was the main driver there in terms of school selection and selecting what you wanted to study and like, Again, thinking about managing your time, you probably, knowing you, probably spent a lot of, not a lot, you actually were very thoughtful about how you allocated your time to those studies. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I had spent a lot of time thinking about like to go, to just go and like immediately drop out or to take it seriously. And I think that's, those are the three options for every like semi-ambitious person growing up, which is like, even now, I think the price is way higher just because the op cost on time is so high, right? You could just like be in San Francisco, you could just be in New York and meet people, go to meetups and probably end up with like a higher consequence on your time than going to just some like random school. But for me, no, I mean, even back then, I kind of knew that like my curiosity would take me places, I guess, like I think just learning, I just had a deep desire to learn. I didn't really care what I do, right? Because fundamentally, you could go to any school, but it's just like, it's the desire to learn that's scarce, I think as Naval puts it. So I knew I had that and I kind of knew I'd be fine. So for me, like the main thing that I wanted to do was maximize my surface area people. And I wanted to get my reps in with just like meeting as many different types of people as possible. One current contemporary problem 
in America is that basically every ambitious person growing up tends toward the same activities, same interests, and you end up in this like mimetic rivalry of these interests, right? So it could be like, oh, I'm a competitive programmer and I'm good at math and I read these books and I go to the gym or whatever. And like, those are all great activities, but you do end up going to any of these like ivory tower institutions and people all kind of reflect the same opinions and those things. And I know that's like something that professors talk about a lot, but I think the only way to prevent that and what I thought about back then was just like, where can I go to meet people I never see otherwise? And so I went to the UK to do my undergrad in part just because I thought like the UK is like very good, I think, for students and they like even the best places like it could be Oxbridge or whatever, like they don't have way higher prices than like you see reflected in the States. And so, yeah, just wanted to meet like tons of different people across all socioeconomic backgrounds. And that's kind of exactly what happened. So I went to Warwick, which actually is the home of accelerationism. So now you're probably seeing everyone online talk about EACC. But yeah, that was all coined when I was at school and uh, spent a lot of time with those theorists, like accelerationists. Did it deliver what you wanted? Oh, 100%. Yeah, beyond a shred of doubt. I mean, I think there were many great things that happened, but I think like Warwick, which is stereotypically in Coventry, was the home of like just so much new intellectual thought. Like, for example, accelerationism, the notion that more technological progress is better sooner than later, is probably the only new philosophical discipline that's been made like in the past 50 to 75 years, which I find quite incredulous. But yeah, I mean, like, that's why I think it's taken such a fervor amongst the libertarians in the West. And yeah, being in that place where people were just thinking about like, how do we actually apply these crazy concepts that like Nick Land, who coined the term came up with in real life, I think was probably one of my early interests in venture. So, so when someone meets you, I think it's fair to say it. I know most of your friends and colleagues will say you do project a lot of confidence and on some level you're curious obviously but you're confident in your quest for knowledge and learning now that being said when someone faces you they don't assume that you've ever stumbled along the way and what i like to learn is what were the stumbles right there might not be any but i'm always curious like were there any like setbacks on your journey that actually helped you and it might be personal, it might be upbringing, it might be professional, but it's usually something that helps you, like, that is very highly formative. Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I would assume people would say that. I never really thought about it that way. But no, I feel as if I'm failing all the time. And I think that's the only way to improve. But yeah, in the past, I mean, like, even when I was growing up, I never, you can imagine, like, didn't really fit in with people, moved around a bunch, like, had to find my own interests. And then obviously I was like the only person in my area to like immigrate out of the US, like especially the Bay Area, right? Which really see people doing that because like, why would you? I mean, if there's like any epicenter of technological progress or progress in general for the past like 50 years, it probably would be like Silicon Valley, right? But leaving that, I mean, was definitely hard. And then I think figuring out what exactly I was good at, I think still is incredibly difficult, right? I mean, it's like impossible to know if you're still like doing venture well or even before that. I thought it would be interesting to invest. I never really considered how I would get there. I just thought my learning would probably take me there or propel me there. And then I started off dabbling in like all sorts of very bizarre enterprises when I was in school. And so my first company I helped create was an agritech in like the farming space and different ways of thinking about protein farming, given like how important that issue still is. And then I helped create like a simulation software company in London when I was there. And that was also like a massive nightmare. And in part, I think 
gave me some lens into how we think about investing globally now because it's very hard to like go from American company building and elsewhere, right? And I think having that experience was very transformative. But no, I mean, I I think what helped me survive all this, and I do think to some degree it's survival because so many people try one thing and then they give up. But for me, yeah, I knew I just never had the quitting personality and then two, treated everything like a learning experience. And I was trying to maximize volatility. And I think if there's anything that separates my life from a lot of other other people, it's the, I had a very good sense of like what, risk to take at what time and i think to some degree i still can have that i mean that's kind of what investing in venture is fundamentally right it's like do we take this bet now or should we wait or should we just never take it right and i think having a very good grasp on risk and what risk actually means i think has been important yeah no doubt and but the challenge i was thinking as you're as listening to you right now is you said you made a comment earlier on about you can stay your ivory tower but at some point like you need to be a hedge fund you need to put your ideas to work one of the challenges with ventures, given the deployment cycle, and yes, there's some nuance to that in the token investing paradigm that we'll talk about. But still, these are pretty lengthy deployment life cycles. And sometimes you might wait five, seven years to know if you're right, right? I mean, there might be signs and glimmers along the way, but the net of it is when you put on a trade in liquid markets, like it could be a day long. It could be five minutes. It could be a month long, but you're going to find out very quickly if your ideas are panning out. So it's interesting. It takes a lot of patience and the ability to dissociate yourself from the noise in the short term to be able to see things clearly and formulate a view as to like what the distribution of outcomes could be five, 10 year hence. How did you get first acquainted with Dragonfly and like, what was your first exposure to the funds team? Yeah, this was also a wayward story filled with a lot of chaos. But in a past job, I was on an investment team at OnDeck, which was also another kind of Peter Thiel back company and founders fund company. And I'd been angeling a lot into crypto and helping build a lot of now seminal crypto companies. And my investment thesis as a job was to do like I was doing space and biotech and crypto, but I found that a lot of, as the months and years went by, just more and more of my time was spent on these crypto companies in part because it's like, I think with the atom based industries, a lot of it comes down to prestige, like personal prestige, status, age, like, I mean, anything to do with regulation, I think requires just incessant amounts of social capital, right? And even though like, I think I could add maybe have value add on company building or whatever, like that fundamentally doesn't move the needle in a lot of atom space industries given like you need both the twin plants of capital and yeah, like power itself. So crypto was, I think, just the place where I could make the most impact. And so I'd been angeling these companies. And then I found that Dragonfly had just been leading each of the rounds of these companies. And I was like, wow, okay. And I'd never met anyone at Dragonfly. And so I took it upon myself to meet one of my now colleagues, Tom. We had an hour long chat, just this like backwards cafe in New York. And I just came away just so stunned because at the time I'd to some degree given up on a lot of the crypto landscape. Like to me, I felt as if a lot of people were rightfully so thinking about the industry in the last cycle as like just like this whole pump and dump thing. Like I'd been kind of jaded by that. But then once I met the Dragonfly team, I was like, wow, these guys are like in it to win it. And like no one I think at the firm even now is like doing it for any sense of like 
personal prestige or anything like that. I think we're all just trying to be the best and we all come at it from such unique angles that like I could never find this conversation that I have with the team anywhere else. So that's a great environment to evolve in. Again, going back to your opportunity cost assessment, which you seem acutely aware of, how did you assess the opportunity potential? I mean, you sought it, right? So when you had that conversation, was this curiosity amidst a certain jadedness at the time, but with the goal to get in front and, and maybe get a seat at the table? Or was it more like, hey, I'm going to sit down with them walking away from that conversation. You're like, hey, I actually would love to come to work every day and do this with those guys. Like, what was the process there? Great question. The impetus was actually fundamental curiosity because so when Dragonfly was created, it was an Asian firm and like the original portfolio was and investor base was largely Asian. And then over the years, we spread more to the West and now we operate in kind of both like jurisdictions, but no one else had been doing that. And so my curiosity was just like, how is it possible that such a tiny firm is both successful and they operate like every time zone? Because for me, I could see the demographic stuff coming from a mile away, just given like all the experience I had in these like emerging markets. And I was like, wow, okay, crypto is fundamentally a unit of globalization, but everyone's just headquartered in America, right? And I'd seen that problem square on because it was like, no one had hedged out the risk of just being like completely in the West in a place, especially where like, for example, like America and Indonesia have like similar populations, right? And like, as the decades go by, like fundamentally more and more capital will go to the demographic situations of like people that are spending this capital and all those things. And so I was curious, like who was doing that? And that resulted in my decision of talking to Dragonfly because they knew that they were very like technically aware and that resulted in a lot of great investments, just like how deep in the weeds they were. And yeah, the fact that they just deeply wanted to win. I mean, Haseeb in his case used to be a competitive poker player. And I think it's the drive to be the best. I think that I was transfixed by. That's a good motivator. Was he a big part of why you joined? Are you someone that you look up to in terms of leadership and inspiration? Or you see him as an inspiring colleague, just as all of your colleagues? No, definitely the former. I think what Haseeb and Bo and the rest of our managerial team has been able to do has been like nothing short of exemplary, right? And I think we were lucky to miss a lot of the great calamities of last year for that precisians. A lot of other people, I think, would have just taken the cheap, easy money. And they did. Right. And I think that's kind of why now a lot of crypto kind of feels in the gutter because so many people like traded reputation for easy gains. And you can do that maybe as a liquid fund, right? Because like fundamentally what matters when you're a hedge fund or liquid fund is like just pure like cash returns, right? How much money did you manage? And sure, that's the same for venture, but because venture is such a human centered business, if people feel slighted, if people feel like you're cheating them and you're not doing the job properly, you don't earn the right to keep doing it. And you have to interface with your customers, which in our case, of course, are like tangentially, like obviously our founders. I mean, that goes without saying, but then also the LPs, right? And if you're not doing the best you can for either of them, then people just know. And it's like very apparent. Venture is a great business because there's nowhere to hide and everything is public, especially in a place that is as PVP player versus player as crypto. Yeah, no, I agree. And you talk a lot about time and scarcity and Another one is just trust slash reputation, right? And it's a big reason as to why nodes within a certain network operate and are connected, right? And if you breach that trust and you essentially severe like that activity, and to your point, it's such a networked industry that you will get found out. The other thing I'll say is 
you talk about a small firm. I mean, it's from a VC firm standpoint, it's by no means a small firm. I mean, it's pretty astounding what the founders of your firm have been able to put together over such a short time horizon. And kudos to them to convince investors to back them on such a scale, which a lot of firms will take decades to get to, right? And so call it good market timing, call it investment prowess, salesmanship, competence. It is what it is, but it's certainly a massive player in the fund. And you have to worry with it to stay the course. How much more complex is being a venture capitalist in the context of crypto and, and digital assets? Like, you have colleagues who invest in software or deep tech, you name it. In your world, what do you think makes it more complex? That's a great question. I would say that like compared to past investment roles I've done, like the thing that is very hard you see when people in Web2 try to get into crypto is just the rapidity of things and how complex some of these things can actually be, right? So when you look at like whatever happened last year, with FTX or Three Arrows and all those things, it threw like kind of normie Web2 investors for a loop because they just imagined that the games that they had played in Web2 would just port over to Web3. But crypto is a microcosm in and of itself, right? It almost is like a cult phenomenon. And I think Vitalik was very right when he said the crypto conference gambit is something that we have invented as an industry, right? Where just so many things happen at like ETC, the Paris conference or Stanford blockchain week, that it's like these memes that propagate. And I think people try to dabble in crypto. And I think if anything, in the past few months, past few years, they've realized that they just can't because they'll get their faces ripped off. And the thinking that you have to do in crypto is just so different. And the variables are so unique compared to anything else that unless you're just like really in it, and you know, the ins and outs of the industry, you just don't get alpha. And you can't just like rely on what you see on Twitter to be the truth. Yeah, no, and if anything, it's the opposite, right? You need to be, I mean, it's funny that your founder is, was a poker player, right? There's a lot of that, right? And you sort of have to fend for yourself, right? What is out there, what is obvious may not be that obvious. And so reading the tea leaves, knowing who to talk to, how to vet things, really also have the technical wherewithal and the business wherewithal to understand exactly what the implications and ramifications are hugely important in the space. How the roles split within your group? Like, how do you guys decide? But look, it's always, there's thesis, there's sourcing, there's process, process being both pre-trade and post-transaction. How do you as partners within the firm split that, right? How is it organized? Yeah, one line that I think helps me think about this is Orwell's like to see in front of one's nose requires a constant struggle. What I think he meant by that is if you let your guard down even briefly in anything you do, you'll find yourself just like in this maelstrom swept by the ties and you just don't know what's going on. And in a space like crypto, you don't really have that break, right? It really is just like nonstop 24-7. And so for us, like we don't have specific focuses at the firm of like, this is the person that focuses on zero knowledge. This is like the NFT person, the DAO person. And I used to see firms do that all the time, especially in the bull run. But all that happens is that people just become siloed, right? And it becomes like these almost like Greek city-states where people have their own fiefdoms and they don't want other people to encroach on their own forms of knowledge. But for us, it's kind of expected that people should just know everything. Crypto is a very tiny industry. When you look at it vis-a-vis -vis anything else, I mean, it, it like TradFi just dwarfs anything in crypto, right? And it could be like any industry, but 
your crypto market cap is not very large. And so for us, it's really just, yeah, you have to keep learning. And I think we do a lot internally on making sure that like people are up to date of what's going on. I think that's the only way to get better as a thinker. It's to enter into areas that are once hidden and to come out the other side a bit more in the light. And we spend a lot of time just trying to train people who are at the firm of like, what is going on? What is correct? Like, what is the best way to think about this? And yeah, everything on crypto is deeply linked. I think everything in like most disciplines, as we said before, is deeply linked. And yeah, you have to just keep like nonstop learning. And if you silo it too much, you end up in a place where like people just give up and they don't want to learn anymore. And so we actively prevent that through these methods. So the first thing that comes to mind, given the highly dynamic nature is what is your approach to networking, sourcing deals, the process by which you do that and creating the funnel of the opportunities that you're going to look at? And also as relates to that, do you look at things globally personally or do you look at it within the region? Sounds to me like you look at it globally, right? Given the firm's ethos. Yeah, I think when I was first starting off in venture, I would do like every basic trick in the book. I would like DM people on Twitter. I would send cold emails all the time. I just wanted to get a sense of like who knew things that I didn't. And I still try to go out of my way to do that whenever I have time of like, who do I find particularly compelling, right? Like who is, I guess, willing to say the truth when other people are just not? And why are they so compelled to do so? And I'd say for my sourcing, a lot of it now is inbound. I mean, I prior to joining Dragonfly, I had a very recurrent newsletter, uh, Dreams of Electric Sheep, where I kind of just wrote about the weirdest things on my mind from geopolitics to like cybernetics and theology and all those things that I find very compelling. And so a lot of people kind of reach out to me from that. But yeah, I even now, I think, spend a lot of time talking to people who aren't in crypto. And I think, in other words, the venture job is very much like a diplomat job where you kind of have to talk to everyone to get a sense of like what's going on. And if you stop doing that, you end up in a place where you have people just telling you what you want to hear. But venture is nice because you don't have that luxury, right? You have to just be very well acquainted and intimate with the truth, even when it's hard. So yeah, I try to talk to people in like every business in general, like it could be like mining, which I think we spoke about before this, it could be like people in deep tech or whatever. And I have this deep sense that that's important because for crypto to completely transform the world, it has to get into these industries. And like people have entered crypto from like the weirdest backgrounds. They could be musicians. Like I said, they could be miners or whatever. And really it's our job to know that first, right? To know where the puck is moving before it's even had a time to decide where it's going. So you have very much on silo mentality, right? It's like starting to think outwards and think of it as something that is much more pervasive than the microcosm makes it look to be right now. So is your thinking, again, five, 10 year hence, that you're outwardly focused as it it's pervasive, it's embedded in many, many other things, right? Because in and of itself, that the inclusion in other worlds, in other realms, begets more success, begets more adoption. That's 100% true. And I think if we were here a decade ago, my thinking might be very different, right? Because at that point, even a few years ago, we had yet to crack like decentralized finance or even get a shape of what decentralized finance could look like. But that was crypto in the first decade of its life. And now as it enters its second decade, it's quite 
important for us to think about like the alpha and just investing in like normal stuff that people have like already thought about the alpha there just goes away and so what i think things are going is like crypto and everything else right so i always talk about how there are like four frontiers left there's like space the mind body the oceans and then crypto and then crypto is kind of the way that we can use to impact all these other frontiers but you can't do that without actually having a concrete grasp of like what's going on in these other industries right so one part of crypto that i've been particularly transfixed by has been like decentralized wireless and thinking about like how crypto could kind of reshape bandwidth markets because originally america in 2001 was going to have a bandwidth market and a lot of people didn't know that and that ended up not happening because like enron was supposed to be managing it and we all know how that story ended and finally now i can see like that picture coming about but with the added twist of crypto networks and so yeah i think a lot of alpha in the future will just be of course alpha in other words is just like what do you know that other people don't know and i find it very confusing how so many people in such a technical space like forget the technical details in all these other spaces and when you look at the people that have created like the most successful companies of all time you find like they're just always trying to improve the business by bringing in like these other technical concepts from different fields like you can look at like Tesla and SpaceX of how friction stir welding at SpaceX was also used for Tesla. So coming up with like brand new material science innovations in like one field in electric cars of all places, like dramatically helped reduce costs in the very competitive aerospace business. And so I think about that with crypto all the time too, of like what other inspirations can I get from these fields to like make our companies a lot more faster, efficient, more powerful. Yeah, there's opportunity costs in reinventing the wheel. And there's an adage in engineering is that it's very rare that you might be looking at a problem that hasn't been solved or where there haven't been worthy attempts to solve it in a completely different vertical. And I saw this a lot in econometrics and quantitative sciences applied to financial assets. I remember drawing a lot of very interesting concepts and modeling constructs from the arrival times, the distribution of arrival times in the emergency room at hospitals across the country to model the arrivals throughout the trading session of RFQs for corporate bonds, right? It actually followed very, very similar statistical processes and hence the modeling that was done in some academic papers there were highly applicable to that. Also looking at how to model weather patterns to capture the distribution of bid and ask side stacks of quotes in response to RFQs, for example. And that's a world that's very, very specific. But I use this as an example to show that if you're trying to solve a problem, I mean, again, as an engineer, I think one of the first reflexes should be to go look in the literature at something that looks similar, but that might be in a completely different world. Because oftentimes, we'll come up with very similar answers. And I think it's easy when you get caught up in that ivory tower that you were ascribing earlier on to forget that. And I think in order for the industry to grow and to prosper, it needs to be open to the idea that some things have been solved or done before and that you could draw upon them. In other words, like you need to be outwardly focused, as we described earlier on. How do you handle the narrowing down of investment opportunities? In other words, you now say, I get a lot 
by virtue of your seat, reputation to market that accrues over time, right? Reputational capital. You get a lot of inbounds. People seek you out. There's a lot of noise. How do you filter that down? Actually, yeah, really quick before that, let me recapitulate on the point you were bringing up about stats, because that's actually one of my deep interests in school, just when we're talking about chaos theory of like, how do you apply like math and stats to just many unsolved areas, right? And I think that's like the culmination of the mind, which is the people that are the best at doing that. You can see all these patterns kind of show up. I think there are patterns in everything. And it's just our question in markets to figure out what they are, right? Like the truth is just there. You're either like smart enough to pick it up or you're not, right? And like, that's at least the nice part about all of this. And so one of my favorite books in that regard is this book called The Physics of Wall Street, shaping the history of like, how did people apply like Brownian motion and the early days of stats, like all the way to finance and really enjoy that one. But to your point about how we source investments or like how we whittle down investments. I mean, I ask people like, I guess, very basic questions. And for the most part, 99% of the time, it typically fails. I mean, when you're looking at an early stage company, I think it boils down to just a few discrete points, which is like, what is the market? What is the team? And like, what's the product, right? And very often when you boil down into any of these categories, you find that, wow, there's not much substance here. One thing that I think has been off repeated, not just by me, but by a lot of other investors is that we live in a time given there's still tons of like capital in the world that for the most part in the past decade, startups in a lot of cases have become like branding exercises, right? And the hard part for investors is to figure out like how much of this is truth and how much of this is just like complete bluster. And there's no like substance behind this because distribution, of course, is probably one of the most important things for a company. But in crypto of all places, you end up finding people who have immense, unbelievable distribution, but at the same time, they don't have like the engineering chops to pull it off. And so when you even ask people like what the distribution strategy or anything else is, very quickly, it like falls apart and it falls apart maybe in two or three ways. But yeah, I don't really do anything that complex. And I think people fail so often at the basic things, right? And I believe in the case of like, if you're a master of the basic things to like the Richard Feynman point in physics, like you'll get most of the way there. And I think the great part about having a very adept team is that you can always fill in the blind spots of the things that you missed beyond that. And yeah, a lot of investing, even when you look at the great investors, like they're not doing like fundamentally complex things. One of my favorite stories here is about Rentec and how like, so Rentec, of course, Renaissance Technologies, probably the best investment vehicle of all time, will hire these completely amazing Nobel Prize winning astrophysicists. And when you ask them what they do all day, they're like, I clean data. And you're like, what? They're paying tens of millions of dollars to these folks. And basically the day-to-day of the Rentec job for many people is just like, yeah, I put data in very clean, accessible ways that make sense. But they're actually getting paid to think about like does the data make sense like is this the right thing that we need to be looking at and that skill is actually very rare so they're not just like using excel or whatever but they're like oh is this like the proper form of data that we need and so that's kind of how i think about our job when we whittle down investments of like do these basic things make sense and if they don't it's like this is just not going to happen at this stage yeah no i mean again intimately familiar with what you just described at the end of the day is to your point is how to create an information architecture I use that term because that's really what it is. It's like you have a set of raw data. In your case, you're getting inbounds. You have a cross-section of opportunities that's dynamic in nature that occurs every day, right? And ultimately, it's how you're going to acquire, process, enhance, and then extract from that data. I call it APEX, actually. 
And it's the same concept in quantitative finance, right? And you're absolutely right. A big part of the work in the quantitative finance space is creating this information architecture. Because if you don't do this, like the actual applying models to fit or train, like you already know, like if the data can be architected in a certain way, that you already know which models you're going to use. Like you might spend a lot of time downstream, like fine tuning the models, doing the diligence at that level, but that's due process. The conceptualization actually occurs upstream, right? And so it's those overarching first principles as to how you architect the information that then allow you to exploit them with models. Models are, are downstream, right? In the case of venture, I think the models are going to be much more human-driven at this stage, right? There's no, there's only so much information that you can capture in the data. A lot of it is qualitative in nature. Some of it is quantitative, but not disclosed. So you need to go and capture it. And that, hence the network nature of the job. Yeah, I guess to that point, there's two things there that I think like every phenomenal venture capitalist has, which is they're incredibly sharp and curious and they know that. And whether it happens early in their career and they have a few major successes early on, like Josh Kushner, I think they invested in Instagram and then two days later it was bought or the next day it was bought by Facebook. And so we kind of had the early wins propelling them. And the second thing is that venture and anything to do in technology is very analogous to the mycelium network of fungi. So the mycelium network is this thing that's unique to fungi where underneath the ground, they can go into tree roots and they form this network, which allows plants to kind of communicate as they transport like their sugar supplies to one another. But it is this like very complex, very intelligent network of sharing information as fungi. And you can think of every great venture capital shop as kind of this extensive mycelium network. And so I always say that like Sequoia is probably the best mycelium network of all time, just because they have their roots in like so many different areas on the world that it's become this tremendous geopolitical force. So much so that the Biden administration is currently looking into Sequoia, right? And how powerful they are because of the various like kind of details they have about like frontier technology and everything that they're doing. And so that is kind of the end state for every venture capital firm, which is they become like an instrument of this like geopolitical battle we're always fighting. And like they're at the forefront of so many interesting things and in different areas that they just kind of know the future before everyone else. And so you have to do both. And it's doing both that is incredibly difficult. Like how do you remain incredibly sharp and open-minded and at the same time having this very deep, extensive network that you can tap into for the future? How competitive is your work right now versus a year ago? How is it when you look at deals, do you get into bidding wars or is it pretty much the opposite right now where you have the upper hand and can really price your deals the way you want them? Yeah, I think a year ago it was way more competitive because of the amount of players in the market. But then now post FTX, like a lot of the field of crypto venture has been called quite extensively. That doesn't mean that we don't have to compete. We still have to compete, but we're competing on very different metrics. I mean, I think Anyone in the space right now will tell you that the, I think across any form of venture, it could be AI, it could be crypto, it could be like agritech or whatever, that the market is not cleared for capital of people are still expecting super late valuations and people will fill those. Like it won't necessarily might be like S tier venture capitalists, but somebody in the market will, could be like a tier four or whatever venture capital firm bid their way in. So I think the difference now is that we have far fewer players 
in the momentum game because crypto is very easy to be a momentum investor where you can go in and invest and kind of expect token price to go up, which you see so often that people have coined it the L1 trade because basically if you invested in any L1 that is like now still there, you would have made money, right? So people are investing in the equity just to get the token and they're betting that the token price will go up. And so that behavior, I think, has not been upturned just yet, but it is still less competitive, I would say. I think we have a unique angle on the business just because of the global nature of the firm. And I think that itself allows us to avoid a lot of competition and avoid just being commoditized capital. But I think if you look at like the average player, yeah, I mean, it is just phenomenally competitive because individual investors, family offices that have become very crypto savvy, you're competing against them. You're competing against like people that are very technical and understand infrastructure and like zero knowledge proofs better than everyone else. So you have this bimodal distribution of very specific capital that like is very technical, uh, far fewer of those. And then you have the behemoths that still play in the crypto sphere. It could be HFT shops. It could be just massive venture capital firms with tons of capital, but you have still that dialectic arising. So on the topic of the state of the world right now, which is, this is sort of segue, segueing us into, right now you're sitting on a pretty large portfolio in terms of names and Going through the names in your portfolio, which just sounds like a who's who of the last you know few years of top high profile crypto investments. Some of them have fared well. Some of them are probably not doing as well. What is your sense of the overall health of your portfolio and their ability to continue down the path that there are, or the need for them to reinvent themselves? Well, yeah, I mean, my base case is that given we spent just so many hours with our founders, I mean, like I do, I know everyone else on the team, of course, does. Like, I couldn't be prouder of where a lot of people are at in the market right now. And I think that's because when times were booming last year, we made the concerted effort as a firm to keep our heads on, like, acutely and just be aware of, like, how do we make sure we're not backing Ponzi's? How do we make sure that we're backing in things that 10 years from now, we would still be proud that we were there in the early days, right? Whether it was like first check-in or whatever. Like, I think that's the way that we view our portfolio, which is like, we know that this is a bitter fight to the end, right? And we want everyone to succeed. We know that a bunch of people won't, but that doesn't mean we give up on them. And I think I can be prouder of where a lot of people are at right now. But yeah, I do think though that everyone has to continually reinvent themselves in crypto. Now, this is a business where there is like absolutely no free lunch. I mean, in some areas of TradFi, I think you can make like stat arb trades or something where you can like kind of continue to eke out these like meager rewards with tons of leverage and still succeed. But crypto is an area where you can take your eyes off the road for just a second and get like completely destroyed. So yeah, I mean, we always suggest caution to our portfolio companies. Like even when times are good, you have to be like very deeply aware of the future and like what's coming. And I think the best businesses of all time are very agreeable to new technologies. So you always want to be aware of as a founder of like what could come out that would dramatically drop costs in my business. And you can even see it now with a lot of the AI stuff, right? And we're in this world where people are either AI accelerationists, where they want this to happen sooner than any form. I would say that's like one deep end. And the other end of the spectrum is AI safety of just, we can't really let this stuff happen at all. And if it does, it's going to end the world and be very apocalyptic, which is like basically Europe in a nutshell. And I think there is a similar bifurcation that happens in crypto. And people have to be aware of like what could come out in the space that if it does, 
it would hopefully like really help my business. And you want to be first to that. You don't want to be last to that because at that point, it's kind of over. And you can see that in the DeFi space where so many DeFi projects that were once blue chip ended up just being forks of something else. And I find that to be just a failure on the part of the team, right? It could be that they made so much money off the token or something else that they just decided that the business was not worth innovating on. And we really try to prevent that at all of our companies. It's music to my ears. It's always when I come across someone who says, oh, we're just going to replicate this protocol on this chain because it's a new chain and it doesn't have it. I was like, what is the value proposition there? I fail to understand that. What do you think are the most important innovations right now required in the space? Like you, you, you've the bully pulpit, right? And you're sitting in a seat where people are going to listen to what you say. That doesn't mean that they should take it as gospel, but you certainly have a voice. And so I'd love to hear from you what you think the main innovations that you or your colleagues think are required, right, in the space for it to thrive. Yeah, I think that's correct. What I would say is like everyone always should not take anything, especially in this space. Well, they should take everything with a grain of salt, of course. And I guess what I would say, though, is that like people just don't think about making money in crypto. And I find like that to be like the most mind boggling thing where people still think we're in an era where like just like a great idea with no proper thoughts around monetization will just continue to work. Right. And there are enough people that will still give them money and all those things. But making a business is arguably the most difficult thing you can do, like period, right? It's so much stress. It's so difficult. It never ends. And you're not very well respected for it until you succeed, if and when you succeed, right? So all these different variables, this like compounding variables that are playing against you. But really, the main thing is like, can you make money or not? Like, do you have you made something of value to the world? And does this have like a moat? And is it durable? And is it going to last, right? And I find too many things in crypto to be a flash in the pen. And I think a lot of people would agree that, wow, this is giving like very pump and dump vibes of like something will happen and the founding team will just like leave or quit and they're not going to like stay the course. I would say it's very difficult to make a long-standing business in crypto because so much happens in such a short period of time. But it's our job to figure out the people that are willing to stick it out through multiple cycles. And I know there are many funds that like one of their key criteria for when they're hiring for the investment team is like, has this person survived the crypto cycle? Like, who is this person when times were bad? And who is this person now? And if you just run that gamut across like the past two, three cycles of like, who's still around? I mean, it's like barely nobody, right? It's like barely anyone, I should say. And yeah, it's our goal to find people that are willing to build like durable businesses over the long run that aren't just like, great technological innovations. And I think that's the case in crypto where it's people have built amazing technology and these are great papers, so to speak. But when we think about how it turns into a business, many of the times it just doesn't work. Right. And so I think we as a industry have done great at creating fascinating technology that will shape the world. I think where we do lack is in our ability and our past work in like trying to create like the next greatest businesses of all time. No, I agree. And really what matters is, can these opportunities learn how to scale? And it goes back to one of the things you've hammered along, which is you kind of need to start looking outwardly and like think about how this is going to be embedded in many different aspects. And it, you know, by the way, like I think that it's an interesting time for the industry, and I haven't been exposed to it for as long as you have, but I have noticed that 
on the one hand, there's a tendency to look at where we are right now and take stock of how far it's come, but also how challenging the environment is. At the same time, there are big, big trains in motion, right, that are advancing and grinding it out. And everything is going to start looking very differently, right? And that is, therein lies the challenge of innovation. It's just, it is happening, right? There's so vast and there's so many nodes working on it right now that progress is being made as we speak. And it's very hard to measure it, right? From an instantaneous like measurement DT type standpoint. But once you take stock after a certain period of time, you're going to realize, like when I see what is happening in an area that I'm very keen on, and, and I know you have positions in, in the payment space and payment rails and what's happening in the stablecoin world right now. And I know not everyone agrees with the direction and where it's going, but it is moving, right? And if we start solving for these base, almost like utility-like layers, right? And we start laying the foundation, a lot of the new ecosystem can start thriving and developing on top of that. And that's what I'm excited about. I do think that there's overall, there is a big tanker and it's going in one direction. It's a good direction, might not be the perfect direction, but I do think it's moving. And that makes me very excited. Yeah, I was going to add to that. I fully agree with that. And I think like, even if in the past 10 years, if the only thing that came out of crypto was, obviously this is not the case. There's so many things that have come out, but like, if you just recapitulate and you say the only thing that came out of crypto in the past 10 years of very hardcore work was stable coins. I mean, that itself is a world changing invention, right? I mean, one of my long standing beliefs is that central banks for the longest time have been weapons of mass destruction. And they have been ways that we've cudgeled the middle and lower classes into accepting a lower quality of life through this arcane language of like deep math and everything else that we just don't understand, right? And stable coins have this potential of transforming that landscape of giving people a way out. I think. At this point, there's probably 50 plus countries experiencing hyperinflation. And it's very easy from this vaulted pole to say like, oh, we don't need stable coins because like America is fine and like Western Europe is fine. But then if you look at most of the world, even by population, it's like they're not fine and they have no way out. Right. And so that's something that gives me deep hope of just like, wow, you know, the people that do phenomenal work all over the world that create our agriculture, that have created modernity, like they can finally actually get paid in a currency that they can use. And right now, it's the elite kind of coder class making tons of money off asset inflation, while at the same time, just normal people are getting shafted. So I agree. And this is a personal opinion. I'll put my US hat on. I know you guys are a global firm, but I do want to see a lot of thought leadership and tangible implementations of that thought leadership when it comes to the baseline money infrastructure, because I think there's a geopolitical aspect at stake here that at times gets diluted or lost in translation. And it's something that I personally care a lot about. I think anything that is moving in the direction of, I think, encouraging, developing, distributing dollar-based infrastructure, um, as far as like the baseline money layer, as I like to call it, is very, very important because the alternative is something that is incredibly unstable and over which we won't have a lot of understanding for a very long time. So it better not happen. And I think it's very important that we stay very focused and on message to lay the foundation because otherwise I think the consequences might be, in other words, 
to your point about central banks and the banking system, I think things need to evolve. They need to evolve from within because if we don't solve it from within in starting with a U.S. centric view, and again, this is my personal opinion, you have to solve it from within because otherwise you're going to lose what has made this system very, very compelling as a capital allocation mechanism around the world, right? If you think about how much of the capitalist economy around the world has drawn its design and inspiration from what we've built in the US, whether it's the enforcement of property rights and the way capital markets function and the fact that it's the most highly investable market in the world, if we don't solve for that infrastructural problem as it applies to crypto and do so in a way where the US has its own footprint on it, I think we're going to lose control of it. But again, that's just a personal opinion. Speaking of which, you are overseeing opportunities and portfolio companies across a wide variety of jurisdictions. Are you agnostic to how regulatory regimes are going to pan out? You guys have highly active voices and people. You talk a lot about power when it comes to regulation, social capital. Do you have people who try to influence the outcome? Is it indirect? Is it direct? How outspoken are you when it comes to regulation across the world? Yeah, I would say that we are very aware of what's going on. We are lucky to have like amazing legal thinkers on the team and people that have thought deeply about policy for a very long time. In the sense of like us being on the Hill or in all these various jurisdictions on the ground and trying to make policy, much less so. I mean, it's like barely negligible. I think the amount of benefit that does actually, because like in general, the amount of lobbying going on by VC firms has not really moved the needle. I mean, one way to think about that is just like, given how much wealth, like just zooming out, like when you think about how much wealth just the Bay Area has made to how little that has impacted the city of San Francisco, it does make you think that like people have succeeded beyond their wildest imaginations, but they could not change the San Franciscan landscape. And I think that's like important to keep in mind as people are like trying to play these like national games around crypto and all those things. I mean, there's only so much we can do and we try to do as much as we can to educate people. But beyond that, I mean, you have to kind of be conjoined by people that are like deep in the cathedral, so to speak, right? That are in Washington and all these places making these decisions. So that's not to say that we don't do anything, but it's just to be realistic is to, this is no way like in Quater's terms, are we saying that we're not doing anything or whatever? I think the best thing we can do is we do our jobs to the best of our ability. We create game-changing companies. And at the same time, we try to educate as many people as possible about like why crypto is like a force for good and how it can be used to completely reinvent the world. I think that a lot of people know that. And I think a lot of people, I think you can see, even see with the ETF islands that a lot of people's minds are kind of in the same way. But it really is just a game of control. And I think that is kind of what's going on with a lot of the regulatory apparatus, not just in America, but across the world of like, how do we control this new technology? But that's also not a crypto phenomenon. I mean, you saw it with Gensler talking about how he's going to shift a lot of his thinking to AI now instead of crypto. And I think that's true of a lot of places around the world where when something new comes out, the first way that people have been power thinking about it is like, how do we just control this and make it like uh, subservient to the state? So yeah, that is our way of thinking about things and or at least my way of thinking about things and like what we can do, I think, to give people the best perspective. Because I think that's all that matters. If we give people the best perspective, it's their jobs to take it to finish line. Yeah. And it's essentially also like I, I would assume within the context of your portfolio companies 
and the folks that you're reviewing on a daily basis is assessing the optionality and the, the positive convexity with respect to how regulation is going to pan out, right? Because ultimately, you want to focus on what you can control. You can control how much optionality you build with respect to how it's going to pan out. You can't really control how the regulatory framework is going to pan out. Because to your point, there's so many forces at work, and quite frankly, so many diverging interests and money coming from different directions that it's very, very hard to set the path, right? And kudos to Brian Armstrong and Coinbase. I mean, he's got, he's in probably one of the only seats where he carries enough weight in that debate that I don't know that he can influence it, but he could certainly have a loud voice. But for the rest, I think you're better off, again, playing the optionality, making sure that you're robust. And that's a risk management exercise at the end of the day, right? It's about thinking about how robust is my portfolio to these sets of risk. And that's one of the looming aspects of anything you do in the crypto space is, and you see it time and again, in the past 12 months, we've seen those businesses that were not thinking along those lines. Like, what is my tail risk when it comes to regulation? Oh, no, it's just they're going to keep kicking the can down the road. Well, no, at some point, something's going to happen. You're going to get that cease and desist letter and you're going to hit hard. And those that have actually built optionality didn't get wrong, caught wrong footed. So I think it's a mindset. It's a risk management mindset. Uh, yeah, I guess just to wrap that up, all these players are not thinking about the anti-fragility case that we were speaking of. It's like as a business, it's a job. And for sure, you need to be thinking about risk. Josh Wolf, the founder of Lux Capital, has this great line, which is failure comes from a place of not imagining failure. And it'd be nice to live in this Panglossian world where, oh, I just need to build a business. None of this matters. But crypto is interesting in the way that like you have to be a polymath to succeed at this game. And I think if you were just building a cloud company or a typical SaaS company, you don't really need to be thinking about what are people on the street saying, what are people in DC saying or like across the world saying about policy. But I found that to be a really nice step forward for the technology sphere because it's like you have people that are amazing engineers and amazing technical thinkers at the same time also thinking about policy. And I think as we think about the future, you asked me, what are the things that I find most compelling? And I think one of them is that amalgamation of like, how do we envision new places, new cities and all those things, combining both of those spheres, right? Like how do we take all the innovations we've made around crypto economic systems and bits and apply them to like actual physical infrastructure in new places. What a great way to close the loop on this great conversation. And I know we'll have many more and we've had quite a few already. And hopefully this is just one out of many, but I'm glad we got this one on tape. Ani, thanks as always for your wisdom, your insights. I say that once again, your great confidence as to how you think about the world. It's inspiring. And I think listeners will really like this episode. Likewise. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks. This podcast is produced by Rado Venture Management LLC, RVM. RVM is not an investment advisor. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of any entities they represent, not investment advice.